0: Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another
2: season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira.
1: The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes
2: it to a whole new level.
6: A reminder that this nation has executed two people who stole top-secret documents relating to American nuclear weapons. Donald John Trump is now suspected of stealing top-secret documents relating to nuclear weapons. The words with which to fully express the outrage and the anger and the sense of violation felt by those of us who truly care about this country, who truly care about this democracy, those words do not exist this creature Trump, this liar Trump, this turncoat Trump, this betrayer Trump, this scum Trump, this destroyer Trump, this traitor Trump is suspected of stealing top-secret nuclear documents, walking out of the White House with them, hiding them in his schlock paradise, in his, quote, office above the ballroom and a storage room off an interior hallway near the pool, unquote. And when the government caught him and demanded he return them, he still kept nearly half of them, still ignored a subpoena for them, and though the authorities gave him six weeks to give them back, he did not do so. They got a search warrant for them. They did it quietly. They did it low key. He revealed it. He reveled in it. He played the martyred Saint Fatso of mar lago He played the victim and now it is all going to come out. Trump is suspected of stealing top secret nuclear documents. Devlin Barrett, Josh Dawsey, Perry Stein, and Shane Harris of the Washington Post with one of the great news breaks of our time, quoting, classified documents relating to nuclear weapons were among the items FBI agents sought in a search of former President Donald Trump's Florida residence on Monday, according to people familiar with the investigation. The Post's sources, quoting again, did not offer additional details about what type of information the agents were seeking, including whether it involved weapons belonging to the United States or some other nation, nor did they say if such documents were recovered as part of the search, End quote. A second report on Thursday night got less attention. Brian Enton, the national reporter for the TV network News Nation and formerly an investigative reporter in South Florida, adding, quote, Sources tell me the FBI took dozens of classified documents from Mar-a-Lago, including ts sci information. That stands for top-secret, sensitive, compartmented information. It is among the most top-secret levels. The details about the ts sci materials being found in Trump's office and storage room are from his reporting. Quoting it again, The storage room, I am told, is about 10 by 6, and they're, quote, were boxes everywhere, end quote. Back to the Washington Post. It had a second previously unreported detail. It was about, quote, signals intelligence, intercepted electronic communications, like emails and phone calls of foreign leaders. A person familiar with the inventory of 15 boxes taken from Mar-a-Lago in January indicated that signals intelligence was included in them. As Merrick Garland announced he would ask a court to unseal the search warrant for the nuclear documents Trump is suspected of stealing, we know now, a request Trump has now agreed with, astute reporters recognized a Department of Justice official sitting behind them. It was Matt Olson. Matt Olson is the Assistant Attorney General for National Security Security and the former head of the National Counterterrorism Center under President Obama, and now we know why the hell he was there. But there is still another shoe to drop here. Something changed at mar lago at the beginning of June. The issue of documents about somebody's nuclear weapons, maybe our own, must have been some kind of manageable crisis until the beginning of June. Nightmarish, but under control in some way something must have changed. A subpoena for the records Trump did not turn over in January came, then another for the surveillance video at Mar-a-Lago, which, when the story first broke and the nuclear component was not yet known, seemed to imply a need to verify who had access to the documents that the National Archives wanted back. Now they imply that someone who could have done real damage with documents about nuclear weapons, ours or somebody else's, might have been at Mar-a-Lago, might have been looking at, or looking for, or walking off with those documents. One can hardly imagine either a more heinous crime by any official of government or one more likely to be the obvious conclusion of Trump's lifetime of deceit and selfishness of his incapability to see any importance in anything other than himself, his disregard for laws and rules and ethics, and even keeping the nuclear secrets you've stolen secure from who? Spies? Club members? Saudi princes? The Saudis who were at Trump's club in New Jersey days ago for their money laundering golf tournament? There are people shocked to read these words in the Washington Post, but I cannot believe that there are any people surprised to read these words. Steel documents related to nuclear weapons, ours or in other countries, whether to send them to Putin or sell them to the Saudis or just show them off to some idiot who might be willing to buy a membership to his trailer park trash country club, this has Donald John Trump written all over it. If it's true, there is no room in this country any longer for Trump or his family or his supporters or even the milk toast media who ask, can the country handle the prosecution of a former president? No one takes the professed impartiality of Maggie Haberman of The New York Times seriously anymore, but she has sources, and Thursday... Before Merrick Garland even announced he would have an announcement, and hours before the Post's story, and hours before Trump accepted the release of the search warrant, she tweeted something that in light of the Post's nuclear weapons document, scoop rings prophetic. Quote, Some senior GOPers have been warned by allies of Mr. Trump not to continue to be aggressive in criticizing the DOJ, and FBI over the matter because it is possible that more damaging information about Mr. Trump related to the search will become public. Thus, now, just as Trump had two choices, all the Republicans, all the fascists, all the militias, all the QAnons, all the Fox News puppets, all the One America propagandists, all the Proud Boys, all the Three Percenters, all the Oath Keepers, all the vermin, all the scum. They still have two choices. Trump's midnight statement was typical. He is the victim. There was a break-in. Poll numbers great. Weaponization Whatever the warrant says, whatever the mar lago boxes contain, he and they will make up some excuse and find some pretext and America will become their dictatorship or we will expunge them from our present and our future and our history. There are no other choices. The Republican House Judiciary Twitter account, Jim Jordan's little gang, actually Thursday night, responded to the prospect of a president who might be guilty of committing or aiding nuclear espionage with this quote. So, hours after Merrick Garland says that DOJ only speaks through its filings in court, they go out and leak this story to the Washington Post. Have you no sense of decency, Republicans? At long last, have you left no sense of decency? And we know the answer. No, of course not. He will fight this. You know that. He will deny it. You know that. He will claim it was planted. You know that. And some of the Republicans, enough of the Republicans, will fight it and delay it and deny it with him. You know that. They will follow him and find an excuse even for nuclear treachery. We must wait, but in the interim, we must also do one thing. We must stop with the euphemisms. Trump may have pilfered top secret nuclear weapon documents. Trump may have looted top secret nuclear weapon documents. Trump may have palmed top secret nuclear weapon documents. Trump may have pocketed top secret nuclear weapon documents. Trump may have swiped top secret nuclear weapon documents. Trump may have purloined top secret nuclear weapon documents. Trump may have stolen top secret nuclear weapon documents, but he did not mishandle them. He did not misappropriate them. He did not misuse them. Stolen. Say it. Let me close this. Where I took you a little while ago into that press briefing room of the Department of Justice on Thursday afternoon, the Attorney General, more in anger than in sorrow, tells this creature Trump to put up or shut up and warns him in between the lines that the thing he has so far avoided all this time The full weight of this government and its righteous indignation will be brought to bear upon him and will crush him. And in the back of the room, behind the reporters, is that Assistant Attorney General for National Security, Matt Olson, saying nothing, revealing nothing, but knowing whatever Merrick Garland knows or doesn't know about missing documents about nuclear weapons in the hands of Donald Trump. There is a curious fact about Matthew Glenn Olson that somehow raises this entire nightmare to something higher, almost more imperative, certainly more ironic. Olson's biography is a series of spectacular career achievements. Head of the National Counterterrorism Center on the board of the nonpartisan Human Rights First organization founded to stop torture, including torture by us. Executive director of the Guantanamo task force. And then there is one line, one brief career stop in his 30 years of public service. Hardly the most important, hardly something you would have noticed at all, say, just six years ago. In 2004 and 2005, the assistant attorney general for national security, Matt Olson, was special counsel to the then director of the Federal Bureau of investigation, a man named Robert Mueller. Still ahead on Countdown, because we must take a breath after all that. If we do not take it now, who knows when we can. It is James Thurber Day. Also, we have our first hopeful sign about Brittany Griner coming home. The guy who used to draw Dilbert makes the worst person's finals and it's not for bad cartooning this time. And the last thing I needed just now was a reanimated Harry Carey singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game from a TV booth suddenly appearing at the Field of Dreams ballpark. And yet there it was. It might be. It could be. It isn't. He's been gone 24 years, let him rest. All that's next, this is Countdown.
7: on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.
0: Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024, and we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you, here on Next Question, is going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you on our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, Or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I call my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood.
4: to start listening.
7: This is Countdown with Keith Oberman.
6: Just ahead, James Thurber, Field of Dreams, Brittany Greiner coming home. First, in each edition of Countdown, we feature a dog in need whom you can help. Every dog has its day. Since pandemic lockdowns ended, this story has unfolded again and again, and each one breaks your heart. On July 5th, a family drove to the Baldwin Park Animal Care Center, Southern California. They took their dog, who had been with them 11 years, 11 years, sweet Roxy, and they left her at the pound. Roxy is a medium-sized mix, your standard-issue mutt, I guess. Very sweet, very gentle, a great kisser, they say, and show on video. But at 11, in a pound, she's one of the dogs least likely to find a new home. We might be able to pledge money and a rescue could pull her out and maybe find her a foster. Or maybe there is somebody in Southern California with a heart and home big enough to adopt a senior dog. If you're interested, go to my account for dogs in need, Tom Jumbo Grumbo on Twitter to see a video of Roxy and get the links that will take you to the website where she is. Look for my tweet about Roxy at Tom Jumbo Grumbo on Twitter. Thank you. Coming up on Countdown, 40 years ago, I may have been the first person on television to do a story about the book that became Field of Dreams. And after last night's second Field of Dreams game, I am begging you, stop it already. But now, postscripts to the news, some headlines, some thoughts, and some snark. Dateline Cincinnati, you already know about this one. A man is dead now after he tried to storm the FBI office there. He was wearing body armor. He brandished an AR-15. He fired a nail gun at law enforcement. He then fled. He tried to hide in a field. He would not surrender. He raised the gun again towards the police and was killed by them. Authorities identified him as 42-year-old Ricky Walter Schiffer. The New York Times says he appears in a video posted to Facebook on January 5, 2021, at Black Lives Matter Plaza in Washington, supporting Trump on the night before the coup. There is also, dated Monday, right after the search at Mar-a-Lago, a post on Truth Social, Trump's version of Twitter, from an account using that same name, Ricky Schiffer. And the post reads, in part, quote, I am proposing war... Be ready to kill the enemy. Violence is not all terrorism. Kill the FBI on sight and be ready to take down active enemies of the people and those who try to prevent you from doing it. And another dead American, courtesy of Donald Trump. Dateline Atlanta, another day, another Herschel Walker story. Opponents have put together a chilling ad in which his ex-wife describes the time he put a gun to her head and threatened to kill her. The first time he put a gun to her head and threatened to kill her. Walker has now made a video in which he says, quote, my opponents think they're hurting me, but I'm glad they did this ad because it gives me the opportunity to end the stigma around mental health. Draw your own conclusions. Dateline, your mailbox. The U.S. Post Office has given itself approval for a temporary price hike between October 2nd and January 22nd holiday congestion pricing, if you will. Priority mail will go up 75 cents. Some bigger deliveries could go up six and a half bucks. And inexplicably, the president has not yet removed the postmaster general, Louis DeJoy, even though he was appointed by Trump to destroy the post office. And dateline Moscow. Light at the end of the tunnel? Russian foreign ministry spokesman Ivan Nachayev says, quote, Instructions were given to authorized structures to carry out negotiations. They are being conducted by competent authorities. It sounds like one of those we fed 100 years of bureaucratic language into a computer and it spit out jokes. In fact, though it got no pickup during the day, the spokesman is confirming that the Russians are finally Negotiating with the U.S. on a prisoner exchange that would send Americans Paul Whelan and WNBA basketball star Brittany Griner home. Amen.
3: This is SportsCenter. Wait, check that. Not anymore. This is Countdown with Keith
6: Olbermann. From the world of wide sports, the NBA gets it right again. The most successful player in its history, its first African-American superstar, its first black coach, Bill Russell, died just 13 days ago. The league has already announced it is retiring his number on every team. Nobody will ever be issued Russell's number six again in the National Basketball Association. Players now wearing it, and there are 10 of them, including LeBron James, Lou Williams, Kristaps Porzingis. They can continue to wear it until the day they retire, which is how baseball handled it when it retired. Jackie Robinson's number 42 in 1997. Mariano Rivera of the Yankees was still wearing number 42 16 years later. Speaking of retiring it... The second annual Field of Dreams game was played Thursday night in Dyersville, Iowa, Cubs and Reds, complete with fake old-timey wood fencing around the field and fake manual scoreboards on the TV broadcast and the announcers wearing sweater vests and cloth caps and sleeve protectors from the 1920s for no good reason since the book and the film were set in the 1980s. And everybody who watched the players on the Field of Dreams emerge from the corn and play their game, those fans would have been dressed like they normally did in the 1980s. I mean, if the announcers dressed up like it was 1982, it would make some sense. They also did a seventh inning stretch gimmick gimmick involving a reanimated version of Harry Carey, the late great Cardinals and Cubs and White Sox and A's announcer. Harry died in nineteen uh, ninety-eight, rather, and and I say this having known him. I think at this point, after all the post-mortem commercials and bits, and the Will Ferrell sketches and everything else, and now him singing "Take Me Out to the Ball Game," only it's not him; it's an animated version, and it doesn't exactly look like him. I think Harry is somewhere in the universe at this point, saying, "Hey, for God's sake!" Let my soul rest already. If I'm sounding even more cynical than usual, don't get me wrong. I loved the movie. And I loved the book. Shulish Joe was the name of the book. And in point of fact, I am pretty certain I was the first person to publicize the book on TV. I did a report on it in May or June of 1982, 40 damn years ago. I did a report on it on CNN. Yes, a CNN story about a book I extolled its nostalgia and its tale of redemption and particularly its emphasis on the non-commercial value of sports, in particular of baseball. And that is the exact opposite of the Field of Dreams game. It was a little hokey last year when they introduced it, but it was novel and I guess it was okay. But in the second year, it's now nothing but another opportunity to merchandise a past which baseball spends the rest of its year trying to kill off. Every single camera angle, including the endless number of crane shots and and shots from drones, each one of them centered on one advertisement or another. And the teams wore special 1914 style versions of their uniforms, which, of course, are now available at exorbitant prices online. After I did that 1982 CNN story on his book, W.P. Kinsella, the man who wrote Shoeless Joe, corresponded with me. He was kind enough to help me on a very bad novel I was writing and happily burned. And I do remember he confirmed a point I made in my report, that his story was about a part of life that for once didn't happen to carry a price tag on it. Well, all the Field of Dreams game is, is price tags. And one last complaint. Doesn't it bother anybody that the players in their old-timey uniforms playing in the same cornfield in which they shot the movie, they are cast in the role of the equivalents of the ball players in the film? And I hate to remind you of this, but the ball players, all the ball players in the film, they are dead. Still ahead, it's time for more James Thurber. In this edition of the pod, The Night the Bed Fell. First, the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's... Hey, Worst persons in the world! Sorry, Harry. Our bronze winner, the Lincoln Project, the somewhat dicey group of anti-Trump Republicans now trying to fundraise, it says, a million dollars to run an ad on Fox News to, quote, mess with MAGA as noted fairly roundly when this appeared, so you want us to give you money, and when you get to a million dollars, you're going to give the million dollars to Rupert Murdoch and Lachlan Murdoch and Tucker Carlson. It seems like there's a flaw in that plan somewhere. The silver to Balloon Head, the evil Charlie Brown, the not-best-and-not-so-brightest-young-conservative-troll Charlie Kirk in the wake of the hiring of new Internal Revenue Service agents and the execution of the search warrant at the home of Donald Trump, possible nuclear thief. Kirk says the red state should defund the federal government, quoting states should say like Arizona should say the IRS is not welcome in Arizona. Just an idea. Yeah, and a good one. The last calculation by Business Insider is that the state of Arizona gets $31 billion more a year out of the federal government than it puts into the federal government whereas everybody in new york state pays an average of three thousand bucks into the national kitty it costs me three grand a year to keep the other states in business every man woman and child in arizona is basically paid by the government forty four hundred dollars a year to be an american citizen so keep the irs out watch arizona's government go bankrupt in a week to ten days and save me the you know, 85 or so bucks a year, I, I pay to keep just Arizona alive. That's great, I can go spend that on the dogs. But our winner, Scott Adams, or as he publicly identifies himself, Scott Adams, parenthesis, famous for creating Dilbert, and parenthesis. At 7.30 Eastern Monday night, he tweeted, I will allow my government 48 hours to explain itself. At 7.03 Eastern Wednesday night, he tweeted, Time's up. At 8.44 Eastern yesterday morning, he tweeted, I waited two days for my government to justify an FBI raid on a former president's home. I think that was fair-minded of me. No justification has been offered. The presumption of innocence of the government and FBI can now be removed from the options set. Phase two begins. Meaning, clearly, the end of phase one where Doris gets her oats. And as humorist Patrick Monahan replied... Phase two is drawing Dilbert holding a gun. Scott, oh, I get it. He wasn't Dilbert. He was Dilbert's idiot boss, Adams. Today's worst person in the world.
7: on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.
0: Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024, and we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you, here on Next Question, is going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you on our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be like, are they going to call me grandma like I call my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity.
4: to start listening.
6: Monday through Thursday here, the number one story on the countdown has been and will be tales of horror and nonsense from my career. Next week alone, Tuesday, it's 45 years since Elvis Presley died. You know who did the last radio commercial for an Elvis Presley concert? Me. You know who, uh, who still has the tape of the last commercial for an Elvis Presley concert? Also me. I'll play it for you. And I'll talk about that weirdness and the night I nearly hired Monica Lewinsky's lawyer to get me out of doing a nightly show about Monica Lewinsky. But we will close each week with an old tradition from the TV show, reading aloud from the works of the great James Thurber. I have argued before that James Thurber is the greatest American humorist, and it dawns on me that the argument is not unlike the idea that Shohei Ohtani of the Los Angeles Angels is almost automatically the most valuable player in baseball each year because he is an all-star hitter and an all-star pitcher in the same body. James Thurber was a brilliant writer, and in his spare time, he was an equally brilliant, almost avant-garde artist in the same body. His simple drawings depict the most complex of emotions and comedic situations. His dogs are immortal. And then there were his captions. Well, I can't do anything with his drawings in a podcast, so I'll just read. And I will read you now in this episode what is probably his most famous story. From My Life and Hard Times, The Night the Bed Fell by James Thurber. I suppose... That the high water mark of my youth in Columbus, Ohio, was the night the bed fell on my father. It makes a better recitation, unless, as some friends of mine have said, one has heard it five or six times, than it does a piece of writing, for it is almost necessary to throw furniture around, shake doors, and bark like a dog, to lend the proper atmosphere and verisimilitude to what is admittedly a somewhat incredible tale. Still it did take place. It happened then that my father had decided to sleep in the attic one night to be away where he could think. My mother opposed the notion strongly because she said the old wooden bed up there was unsafe, it was wobbly, and the heavy headboard would crash down on father's head in case the bed fell and kill him. There was no dissuading him, however, and at a quarter past ten he closed the attic door behind him and went up the narrow twisting stairs. We later heard ominous creakings as he crawled into bed. Grandfather, who usually slept in the attic bed when he was with us, had disappeared some days before. On those occasions, he was usually gone six or eight days and returned growling and out of temper with the news that the Federal Union was run by a passel of blockheads and that the Army of the Potomac didn't have any more chance than a fiddler's bitch. We had visiting us at the time a nervous first cousin of mine named Briggs Beal, who believed that he was likely to cease breathing when he was asleep. It was his feeling that if he were not awakened every hour during the night, he might die of suffocation. He had been accustomed to setting an alarm clock to ring at intervals until morning, but I persuaded him to abandon this. He slept in my room and I told him that I was such a light sleeper that if anybody quit breathing in the same room with me, I would wake instantly. He tested me the first night, which I had suspected he would, by holding his breath after my regular breathing had convinced him I was asleep. I was not asleep, however, and called to him. This seemed to allay his fears a little, but he took the precaution of putting a glass of spirits of camphor on a little table at the head of his bed. In case I didn't arouse him until he was almost gone, he said, he would sniff the camphor, a powerful reviver. Briggs was not the only member of his family who had his crotchets. Old Aunt Melissa Beale, who could whistle like a man with two fingers in her mouth, suffered under the premonition that she was destined to die on South High Street because she had been born on South High Street and married on South High Street. Then there was Aunt Sarah Shofre who never went to bed at night without the fear that a burglar was going to get in and blow chloroform under her door through a tube. To avert this calamity, for she was in greater dread of anesthetics than of losing her household goods, she always piled her money, silverware, and other valuables in a neat stack just outside her bedroom. With a note reading, this is all I have. Please take it and do not use your chloroform as this is all I have. Aunt Gracie Schoeff also had a burglar phobia, but she met it with more fortitude. She was confident that burglars had been getting into her house every night for 40 years. The fact that she never missed anything was, to her, no proof to the contrary. She always claimed that she scared them off before they could take anything by throwing shoes down the hallway. When she went to bed, she piled where she could get at them handily all the shoes there were about her house. Five minutes after she had turned off the light, she would sit up in bed and say, Hark! Her husband, who had learned to ignore the whole situation as long ago as 1903, would either be sound asleep or pretend to be sound asleep. In either case, he would not respond to her tugging and pulling so that presently she would arise, tiptoe to the door, open it slightly, and heave a shoe down the hall in one direction and its mate down the hall in the other direction. Some nights she threw them all, some nights only a couple of pair. But I am straying from the remarkable incidents that took place during the night that the bed fell on father. By midnight, we were all in bed. The layout of the rooms and the disposition of their occupants is important to an understanding of what later occurred. In the front room upstairs, just under father's attic bedroom, were my mother and my brother Herman, who sometimes sang in his sleep, usually marching through Georgia or onward Christian soldiers. Briggs Beale and myself were in a room adjoining this one. My brother Roy was in a room across the hall from ours. Our bull terrier Rex slept in the hall. My bed was an army cot, one of those affairs which are made wide enough to sleep on comfortably only by putting up, flat with the middle section, the two sides, which ordinarily hang down like the sideboards of a drop-leaf table. When these sides are up, it is perilous to roll too far toward the edge, for then the cot is likely to tip completely over, bringing the whole bed down on top of one with a tremendous banging crash." This, in fact, is precisely what happened, about two o'clock in the morning. It was my mother who, in recalling the scene later, first referred to it as the night the bed fell on your father. Always a deep sleeper and slow to arouse, I had lied to Briggs. I was at first unconscious of what had happened when the iron cot rolled me onto the floor and toppled over on me. It left me still warmly bundled up and unhurt, for the bed rested above me like a canopy, Hence, I did not wake up, only reached the edge of consciousness and went back. The racket, however, instantly awakened my mother in the next room, who came to the immediate conclusion that her worst dread was realized. The big wooden bed upstairs had fallen on father. She therefore screamed, let's go to your poor father. It was this shout rather than the noise of my cot falling that awakened Herman in the same room with her. He thought that mother had become for no apparent reason hysterical you're all right mama he shouted trying to calm her they exchanged shout for shout for perhaps 10 seconds let's go to your poor father and you're all right that woke up briggs by this time i was conscious of what was going on in a vague way but did not yet realize that i was under my bed instead of on it Briggs, awakening in the midst of loud shouts of fear and apprehension, came to the quick conclusion that he was suffocating and that we were all trying to bring him out. With a low moan, he grasped the glass of camphor at the head of his bed, and instead of sniffing it, he poured it over himself. The room reeked of camphor. Ah, choked Briggs like a drowning man, for he had almost succeeded in stopping his breath under the deluge of pungent spirits. He leaped out of bed and groped toward the open window, but he came up against one that was closed. With his hand, he beat out the glass, and I could hear it crash and tinkle on the alleyway below. It was at this juncture that I, in trying to get up, had the uncanny sensation of feeling my bed above me. Foggy with sleep, I now suspected in my turn that the whole uproar was being made in a frantic endeavor to extricate me from what must be an unheard of and perilous situation. Get me out of this, I bawled. Get me out! I think I had the nightmarish belief that I was entombed in a mine. (laughs) Gasped Briggs, floundering in his camphor. By this time, my mother, still shouting, "'pursued by Herman,' still shouting, "'was trying to open the door to the attic "'in order to go up and get my father's body out of the wreckage. "'The door was stuck, however, and would not yield. "'Her frantic pulls on it "'only added to the general banging and confusion. "'Roy and the dog were now up, "'the one shouting questions, the other barking. "'Father, farthest away and soundest sleeper of all, "'had by this time been awakened "'by the battering on the attic door.' He decided that the house was on fire. I'm coming, I'm coming, he wailed in a slow, sleepy voice. It took him many minutes to regain full consciousness. My mother, still believing he was caught under the bed, detected in his, I'm coming, the mournful, resigned note of one who is preparing to meet his Maker. He's dying, she shouted. I'm all right, Briggs yelled to reassure her. I'm all right. He still believed that it was his own closeness to death that was worrying Mother. I found at last the light switch in my room, unlocked the door, and Briggs and I joined the others at the attic door. The dog, who never did like Briggs, jumped for him, assuming that he was the culprit in whatever was going on, and Roy had to throw Rex and hold him. We could hear Father crawling out of the bed upstairs. Roy pulled the attic door open with a mighty jerk, and Father came down the stairs, sleepy and irritable, but safe and sound. My mother began to weep when she saw him. Rex began to howl. What in the name of God is going on here? Asked Father. The situation was finally put together like a giant jigsaw puzzle. Father caught a cold from prowling around in his bare feet, but there were no other bad results. I'm glad, said Mother, who always looked on the bright side of things, that your grandfather wasn't here. A Box to Hide in by James Thurber. Oh, goodness. I've done all the damage I can do here. This is where I ask you to rate and review the podcast. Lie, tell them it's great. The Countdown theme from Beethoven's Ninth, arranged, produced, and performed by Countdown musical directors Brian Ray and John Philip Chennail. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray. Produced by TKO Brothers. The other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. Our sports music is the theme from the Olberman ESPN two show written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN incorporated musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was my friend, Stevie Van Zant. Everything else is my fault. So that's countdown for this, the 583rd day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States, a new episode Monday till then I'm Keith Alderman. Good morning. Good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Ulerman is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season.
2: And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira.
1: The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And
2: this season takes it to a whole new level –